Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. Jesus is fishing because, number one, he's, he's God, the Creator. Number two, He's head of the body. He's head of the church. And thirdly, as a result of Christ's work on the cross, sinners can be reconciled to God as holy, blameless, and complete in Christ. So Jesus is sufficient. Let's look at verse 22 of chapter 1 and 23. Just for our immediate context, so we'll know what we're, we're talking about here. Verse 22, God has reconciled them, these Colossian believers, if they continue to trust in the gospel. Then if you continue to, to place your faith and trust in Jesus, you'll continue, you'll be reconciled. You'll continue to be reconciled. And God will continue to keep you. And in verse 23, look at verse 23. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven in which I, Paul, have become a servant. We didn't hit on this last week, but I want to mention this verse because someone may have some confusion about this verse. What does it mean by every creature under heaven? This gospel, this incredible gospel being proclaimed to every creature under heaven. What does that mean? Does it mean it's being proclaimed to every person on earth? Well, no. Um, does that mean every, you know, a lot of people, like sometimes we say, well, you know, everybody was here yesterday. How many ladies came? And Ms. James says, well, all of them came. That doesn't mean every single one. It means a whole bunch, right? But that's not what this is referring to. When he says the, the gospel has been proclaimed to uh, all people, every creature under heaven, what he means here is he's referring to Jew and Gentile. He's say like all types of people, right? There's no discrimination. This gospel is proclaimed to everybody freely. Right to Jew to Gentile. In fact, in, in Acts chapter two, Peter, when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, in verse seven, he says, "In verse seventeen, he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams." What is Peter referring to there? He's referring to all people, meaning all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, right? Because on the day of Pentecost, what happened right after this event, Mr. Nicky, you remember? The Gentiles, they received the Holy Spirit. They repented. They received the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongue to um, uh, to bear witness that they too were believers. So it's all people, Jew and Gentile. So that the gospel has been pre- presented and proclaimed to Jew and Gentile, okay? So that's what that's referring to. And Paul, he's the apostle of who? He's the apostle of the Gentiles, right? And so what we're, we see in today's text, he's going to tell Paul, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, is going to tell these Colossian believers a bit about his ministry today. And by doing so, we'll see a few characteristics of a servant of God, okay? Let's read this, let's read, let's read this text, verse 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, your eternal word. 
that does not change. Father, we praise you because you don't change like shifting shadows. You're the constant in our world. You're the constant in our lives. We're thankful that we're here today to hear the teaching of your word and just to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I recognize with the, the amount of people here, there are some people here, whether they're adult or child, who have yet to repent and turn to you and trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. Father, I pray that you would encourage them, motivate them, inspire them, change them by hearing the gospel. Pray that the brothers and sisters here, that those who know you, God, we would be stirred in our hearts to love you more faithfully, that we would be more devoted to you as servants of the living God. Thank you for allowing us to be together. Do your work this morning. Encourage us and empower us so when we leave here, we'll be more to serve you more wholeheartedly so we can give you more glory in Jesus' name. Amen. From this text, we're going to see three things this morning, kind of characteristics of the servant of God. The first characteristic is the suffering of the suffering servant Jesus continues through his servant, the church. We'll see that the servants of God, they share the gospel. That's what they do. We'll also see that the servants of the gospel always have work to do. We should labor with all his energy. That's what we're going to see today. Let's look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Let's look at the second part of that verse. It is in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is somewhat of a, a difficult verse. We have a couple, verse 23 and then verse 24 here, a couple of difficult verses, or they can be problematic for us. What does it mean uh, to for Paul to say he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Now, it seems to indicate at first glance that Paul is, is doing something to add to Christ's atoning work on the cross. But what's the problem with that? Yeah, it couldn't be that because that would nullify everything Paul said up to this point, right? I mean, that's what he's saying, that, that, that Christ is sufficient, right? And now that would contradict other books of the Bible, like Ephesians and Galatians. That's where Paul defends this argument as well. And it would play right into the hands of the false teachers in Colossae, wouldn't it? And in fact, we know a principle of Bible interpretation that Scripture interprets Scripture. We know that the Bible, because it's inerrant and fallible, it will not contradict itself. And so what we want to do is we want to find other Scripture to help us with this verse. Look at uh, Hebrews real quick. Turn over the Bible to Hebrews real quickly. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25 through 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25 through 28. Nor did Christ enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of age, at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ will sacrifice once to take away the sins of many people, and he will be, appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Uh, flip over one more chapter to chapter 10, verse 12 through 14. Again, speaking of Christ, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So Christ's work was sufficient. 
and in worth it cannot be added to. So Paul is not saying, oh, by, by Paul suffering and added to Christ, atoning work on the cross. That's not what he's saying here. He said, well, what, what does it mean when he says, when Paul says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction? What does that mean? I think that's the first point in our sermon today. I think what it means is that the suffering of the su- suffering servant Jesus continues through his servants, the church. Okay? Notice what Paul says. He says, he rejoices in what was suffered for you, verse 24. See, he had never seen the Colossians. He had never seen them face to face. But yet he says, I have suffered for you, speaking of this church. And we know that Paul had suffered much, right? In fact, when Ananias, when Saul, he, you remember Saul, he's on the Damascus Road, he's persecuting Christians, right? He's trying to uh, eradicate the church. And he's blinded by, by the Lord, by this blinded light, and he's blind. And, and God tells Ananias in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, he tells him to go and to heal him from his blindness, right? And he, what he tells Ananias is, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So the Lord told him he's going to suffer. He's going to suffer for, for, for Christ. We know on his first missionary journey, if you, if you read through the book of Acts, which tells us the, the history of the early church. On, on Paul's very first missionary journey, when he and Barnabas are going out and going city to city, planting churches, sharing the gospel, he's in Lystra. He's stoned and left for dead. They thought they had killed him. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, I'm going to flip over and read this to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just read some things. We talk about Paul and his suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to be looking, just kind of skimming through this in verse 23. Um, this is what he's talking about his uh, his suffering. He says, "I've much uh, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea." I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labor, labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger. I've known thirst. I've gone without food. I've been cold and I've been naked. So he talks about his, his, his suffering. Paul was told he would suffer. He suffered. And he says that he suffered for you, talking about this church and the body, which is the church. There in verse 24. So, Paul, we know he suffered. And the, the church is the benefactors of his suffering. The church as a whole benefits from the suffering of its servants. If it wasn't for the suffering of hardships, we wouldn't have this letter. You remember Paul, the context? Where is Paul when he writes this letter? He's in a Roman jail. Why is he in prison? Why is he in jail? Yeah, because of the gospel, right? Because he's sharing the gospel. It's not because he didn't pay his taxes, right? No, because he because of the gospel. So he's suffering. He's in prison. In order for the gospel to be taken to the nations, the Gentiles, it must be accompanied by suffering, with suffering. What Christ suffered on the cross, but also in life, is continued in a sense in the believer. You get that? Jesus' personal suffering sufferings concluded on the cross, yet his sufferings in his church, his body, continues. 
Jesus died, right? He was beaten. He bled. He died on the cross, right? The third, he died, buried. The third day, he rose from the dead. Sent to the Father, right? He sent his Holy Spirit to dwell believers. But he calls us believers who have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are we make up his body, the church, right? His suffering in the body continues through Paul and also through you and me, right? Acts chapter 9, when Luke recalls the story of Saul being blinded on the road, do you remember? What did, what did, what did the Lord say to Paul or Saul at that time? He blinded him, he couldn't see. What did he say, do you remember? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these people? Why are you persecuting these people? Is that what he said? No. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Speaking not of his personal body, but the body of Christ, right? Yeah. Taking the good news to the lost will require suffering. The suffering of Paul didn't add to the work of the atonement. It didn't. But it did inform many about the atonement. There's a Romanian pastor named Joseph Tan. He says, Christ's cross was for propitiation. Our cross is for propagation. Speaking of the propagation of the gospel, right? The sufferings God's people endure are a continuation of what He endured. And in that sense, they complete His affliction. John Lightfoot, he writes, The afflictions of every saint and martyr do supplement the afflictions of Christ. The church is built up by repeated acts of self-denial in successive individuals and successive generations. They continue the work which Christ began. So these sufferings of Paul, as he's talking about here, he rejoices in these sufferings, right, for the Colossians' sake. These sufferings of Paul extend the blessing of the cross to those who need it. Christ's sufferings are only lacking and they are not known by all people. And it, it shouldn't surprise us that, that believers suffer, but we are, aren't we? Especially in the American church context. We're blown away. I mean, think about it. We do everything we can to avoid suffering. And rightly so, right? Yeah, we don't want to suffer for no reason, right? But especially in the American church context, if we suffer, all of a sudden we, we, we we're thinking this can't be God's will, right? Uh, I've told this story many times, but my, my best, one of my best friends, Chinese friends, uh, Teddy in China, and working with him, uh, trying to empower him to lead churches, start churches, and he starts in, in suffering persecution uh, at the hands of the, the Public Security Bureau in China. And uh, he was having a real hard time, and I remember uh, the first time that happened, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm an American, right? And I go to China, and I haven't really had to endure a lot of suffering, persecution in my life. And I, I remember um, speaking with him about that that evening. He'd spent most of the day with these interrogators, PSB, and I was like, Teddy, I am so sorry that this happened. I was just, just crushed, you know. He says, it's okay. That's what the Bible teaches, doesn't it? And I was like, oh yeah, 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 that's what the Bible teaches, yeah. <laughs> but but that, that began my 
kind of a pilgrimage and, and seeing that and learning about that. Yeah, man. Believers, when they, they're going to share the gospel and do God's work, man, that, that entails suffering. Not suffering for suffering's sake. But when you do the Lord's work, part of that is self-denial. Hitting our cross daily, right? And with that comes suffering. And that's the means by which God builds up His church. What's our view of suffering? Do we suffer as a result of our efforts to do God's work? Paul, Paul did. So servants of God, they, they, servants of God suffer. Second thing I think we should learn from this text is servants of God share the gospel. We talk about this over and over again. We're going to keep talking about this. Servants of God, they share the gospel of Jesus. Look at verse 25. Paul says that he is made a servant of the gospel or a steward of the gospel. The SV, it says, Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. He was a steward. That was his job. His job was to proclaim fully the word of God. Now remember the context. Paul was writing because a group of men were saying that Epaphras, kind of the pastor of the church planter, if you will, in Colossae, he, his teaching was insufficient. He wasn't giving them enough. They needed something else. It's not just faith in Christ and his work on the cross, but it's something else added to that. Either they have to have some experience, they have to have some secret, higher knowledge, right? Something like that. So that's the, the context. But Paul had given them the whole story. I fill up my flesh, but it's still like in regard to Christ's afflictions, Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. What did He teach? He told them the whole story. He made known the Word of God in its fullness. And what is that? What does it mean to fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God? Look at verse 26. He answers that by saying it's a mystery. Now that's kind of Sherlock Holmes-ish, kind of Alfred Hitchcock-ish, you know? A mystery. It's a mystery. What is that? It says this mystery that has been hidden but is now made known. There in verse 26. Well, let's keep on. Look at verse 27. He explains this mystery. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What's the mystery? Continue reading that. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's the mystery? The mystery is Jesus. That's the mystery. The mystery is Jesus and how in Jesus God would gather a people for Himself made up of both Jew and Gentile. Remember verse 23? We read verse 23, remember? He's talking about the gospel that's been proclaimed to all people. All people meaning Jew and Gentile. So what's the mystery? The mystery is Jesus. He's the mystery. And not just Jesus, but how Jesus and how God through Jesus is going to gather a people for Himself made up of both Jew and Gentile. Made up of all kinds of people. It's not just for some people. It's not just for the white people. It's not for the Jewish people, right? It's not for the black people. It's for all people, right? Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Again, Scripture interprets Scripture. Just flip back a few pages. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2 through 6. 
Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. Verse 4. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, and has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and the prophets. Sound familiar? Yeah, Paul's just saying the same thing, different words, didn't he? This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. So what's the mystery? The mystery is Jesus, right? And how Jesus, God, through Jesus, is going to gather a people for himself, made up of Jew and Gentile. That's, that's Paul's job. He's a steward, right? To take the word of God to all people, especially to the Gentiles. He's going to take the Old Testament scriptures and he's going to uh, explain the prophecies of Christ and, and, and explain the prophecy about the gospel and how the gospel uh, was hidden, but now it's made known. It's a mystery. And think about it. In the Old Testament, they didn't have, the, have a clear picture. They had glimpses, right? The Jews, although they had the prophecies of the coming Messiah, right? They couldn't see how their God could come to earth as a carpenter's son. To grow up in, in Nazareth of all places, right? To be poor and have common men like carpenters and fishermen in his cohort. And not only did Jesus not rescue them from the Roman oppression, he was put to death by them. And to top that all of top all of that, at his trial, he didn't even he didn't even defend himself. He just kind of let it all happen. It wasn't clear to him. They couldn't figure it out. Although the Jews knew the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, you remember when God told him to take his son Isaac to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him there? And he goes up and he's about to do it, right? And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord stopped him and he looked over and there's a ram caught in the, in the bushes. And what was the response? What was God's response to Abraham's faithfulness? I'll, I'll read it to you real quickly. Genesis chapter 22, verse 17 and 18 says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. They had glimpses of it, right? Having glimpses of God... Sending this Messiah. We have Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. You know, you have glimpses and prophecies. Little, little tidbits here and there. But it just wasn't clear. And here, he says, through, it's the Abrahamic covenant. Through you, Abraham, through you and your descendants, all nations of the world, all nations, that includes you and Gentile, right? All nations were blessed. So they had glimpses of it, right? But until Jesus came, it just wasn't clear. They had glimpses of it. They knew something was going to happen. They, it just wasn't—it wasn't clear, right? How is God going to gather to Himself a people from both Jew and Gentile? And think about it: this day and time, the Jews—they abhorred Gentiles and vice versa. They just didn't get along, right? Jews just kind of uh, looked down upon them, right? They were unclean, and because of that, the Gentiles probably had had similar view of the, the Jews. There's a bishop in Sydney in the middle of the, the century, Sydney, Australia, who was, 
He had a, a youth group, if you will, a group of boys. And uh, half of them were of Aboriginal descent and half of them were British descent. So they would do things together. They were constantly just fighting all the time. They would get on the bus. And the British would sit on the left, Aboriginal would sit on the right. You know, and they were just constantly fighting. One day they were driving the bus, going somewhere, and he just had enough. He just pulled, this bishop pulled the, pulled the bus over. He said, okay, line up. And he, he lined them all up. And then he put them in all, alternate order. You know, British Aborigine, British Aborigine, just like that. And he says, okay. And he made, made each one of them say, all right, you're not white, you're not black, you're green. Yeah. Or they kind of shirt there. Green. And he had every one of them go and say, I'm green, I'm green, I'm green. So they went down the line and said, okay, you're green. You're not white, white, you're green. Everybody's green, okay? And now let's get back on the bus with the person, sit beside the person you're standing beside. So I had them, had them all integrated, right? And so they, they're driving down the road. And he thought, you know, that worked pretty well. Until he heard a voice from the back of the bus say, okay, light green on one side, dark green on the other, right? Yeah, there's this, this couldn't, I mean, it just wasn't happening, right? But Christ came to the world to save sinners, right? Both Jew and Gentile. This was a mystery. But now it's been, been made known, right? It's been made known to the, to the church. Notice it's interesting how he says the Word of God, the mystery. He says here, Christ in you, the hope of glory. They're all synonymous. They're all synonymous. So how did Paul make known this mystery? Look at verse 28. How did he make known this mystery? We proclaim Him, right? Proclaim Him. What's that mean? It's kind of like preaching. Kind of, kind of like preaching. We proclaim Jesus. George Whitfield, he said, Other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. Preaching, yes, it's kind of for preachers, right? And this takes, for me, it's especially weighty, right? For me and other pastors, elders, shepherds, right? But you know, as, as, I, as I've told you before, and I'll keep telling you, my primary role as pastor is not just to do the work, preach the gospel, but it's to equip you <coughs> as a believer to do the work, to proclaim Him, proclaim Jesus. So my my hope and my vision, my goal is not to, oh, a bunch of people come here Sunday morning so I can preach to you. My goal and my aim is for us as believers in Christ to learn how to proclaim Him. And that's where we're going to make an impact. Paul, he teaches the mystery, that mystery of Jesus and how God, through Jesus, is going to bring a, a gather together a people for himself, made up of Jew and Gentile. How did, he, how did he go about doing that? He proclaimed Jesus. Paul's a preacher, right? He proclaimed him. Is that our passion? Is that my passion? Is that your passion? Also, he says, admonishing. Look at verse 28. Admonishing. To proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Admonishing. It means to confront people with the truth. Confront people with the truth. Setting their minds in proper order through, sometimes through rebuke, right? Admonishing, rebuking, kind of go hand in hand. Reminding them of the consequences. 
somebody's going to do something. I see a brother and sister are going to do something they shouldn't do. It might me that I, I point that out to them. And I said, that's not God's will for your life. And if you choose to do that, these are the consequences. That's admonishing. And in real simplistic terms, you can say it's telling people what they should not do. Tell people what not to do. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Do we do that? Paul, he says, that's how he proclaimed this mystery. That's how he did the Lord's work. By proclaiming Jesus. By admonishing. Sometimes you have to tell people, you you can't do that. That's not God's will for your life. That didn't give God glory. Do we do do that? As body of Christ, believers? Sometimes we need to do that. I've been gone for a long time. You know, 10 years. As I come back, I'm seeing, wow. That's a whole wheel. We don't do that very often. We don't admonish one another within the church. And as a result, you know what? The church as a whole is just insignificant. Its influence is waning more and more each day because we don't admonish one another. Proclaiming Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That teaching, if admonishing is telling people what not to do, teaching I'm real, I'm kind of a simpleton sometimes. Teaching is telling people what they should do. And you do that too, don't you? <laughs> to believers squabbling, what do we do? First we say, hey, you're a brother in Christ. He's a brother in Christ. You need to forgive your brother. You need to go and ask forgiveness. Yeah. That means teaching. Sometimes we have to tell each other what to do. But I don't know what John would do. Well, you know, you have a place in the church. That's what we do in the church, right? We need that. We need people to admonish us. We need people to teach us. Not just me, the pastor, right? We need to do that. That's we need to do that in the congregation, right? Paul, that's what he said he does. He proclaims Jesus. He admonishes. He teaches. But notice it says with all wisdom. With all wisdom. That's the key, isn't it? If we're going to admonish somebody, rebuke somebody, if we're going to teach somebody something, how do we do that? With gentleness and respect. That's what Peter, his counsel, right? He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, right? But do this with what? Gentleness and respect. Yeah. We've got to be loving the way we do it. But to not do it is not, not to love people. We need to love people better, don't we? Paul, he loved people. And he got in each other's business. I mean, he got in people's business also. And a lot of his letters, as you read his letters, what is he doing? He's getting their business. Tell them, you're wrong. You shouldn't do this. Oh, but you need to do that, right? Paul. He's a servant and he suffers. He, he's a servant of God and he proclaims him. He shared the gospel. And lastly, third point. Servants of the gospel always have work to do. We should labor with His energy. Look at verse 28. Again, we proclaim Him, admonishing Him, admonishing and teaching everyone all wisdom. What's the purpose? What's our goal? Why do we do that? Look at verse 28. So that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. (coughs) To be complete, to be perfect, is to be mature. That's our Growing in spiritual maturity is, is just preparation for heaven. You know that? It's just preparation for heaven. So we need to mature. That's the, that's the goal. Why does he proclaim him? Why does he admonish people? Why is he teaching truth? 
so people can grow in Christ, to present people mature in Christ. That was his goal, and that should be our goal, right? You think, well, you know, I thought it was just saying, get people saved, man. People can be saved. They say, man, I, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to, I want to follow Jesus. Got that done. No. I mean, it's, that's just the beginning, right? That's just the beginning. Our, our goal is to pre- present people, everyone, perfect, perfect in Christ, mature. This takes the whole body. It takes the whole body. Striving, working, being diligent. My, uh, my uncle, when I was first, first time I ever flew on a plane, I was, I don't know, about 12 years old, 13, maybe, and I flew to Fort Worth, Fort, Fort Worth, Texas, and my uncle lived there. My uncle, he's a cowboy, like real deal cowboy, and I'll prove it to you. He was going to build a house, and so before he built his house, he built his barn, and he lived in his barn. So his horses had a place to stay, right? And then he worked on his house. But in his barn, it was kind of a cool little deal. He had his barn and he had this, you know, an alley in the center. And over here, his stall for his horse, his horses. He had he was a, he was a rope he rode, had rope horses. And then over here, he had like a little apartment. So that's where he lived. And so when he would get up in the morning, what did he do? Well, he got his pitchfork over there and he cleaned out the stalls. You know, if he's living, you know, this is the alley right here, right? So he's living this far away from his horses. So every morning he would go out and he would scoot, right? And then when he would come off work, scoot, right? And then in the evening, he'd walk across there and what'd he do? He'd scoot the manure, right? Why? Why did he live there, right? And he told me, he said, I said, man, you have to do that all the time? He goes, yep. The only way I can get out of it is my horses die. It was just endless every day, all the time, scooping out of the new one, right? But that's it kind of, you know, we're believers. That's our, our work is never done. Because we ourselves, we're responsible for our own actions, for our own growth. We have to grow in maturity, right? To become like Christ in every aspect of our life. But then what do we do? Well, we've got to help our brothers and sisters, right? To do the same. And so it's, it's never ended. Like, wow, that's kind of the world. It's kind of... That wears me out. Yeah. Look at verse uh, 29. Paul says, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. To this end I labor. What do you think of when you think of a laborer? Now some of you right here, you're bosses. You know, you're a boss. You're a boss. You hire people to do work for you. You're a, you're a boss. But then others of us are laborers, right? We're the guy with the shovel, Right? And the laborer is always the man. He's the man who sleeps well at night. You know what I mean? Because he worked hard all day, right? Um, but that's what he says here. He says he's laboring. He's struggling with all his energy. But but that's the thing. It is exhausting. It is it is daunting. But where does his strength? Where does his power come from? It comes from God. When all is said and done, I've heard it said, there's more said than done. Is that true of me? Is that true of you? Can you say you are a laborer for Christ? Doing His work, sharing the gospel, admonishing the brothers and sisters in Christ, teaching those who need to hear. 
Can you say that? Are you a laborer? Paul, talking about his ministry, describing his ministry, who he is, what he did, but a lot of this is applicable to us as well because we are brothers and sisters of Christ with the same commission, right? The suffering of the suffering servant Jesus continues to his servant the church. Servants of God, they share the gospel. And servants of God labor. They get after doing God's work. By way of application, are you getting after it? First and foremost, believer, brother and sister Christ, are you getting after it? Can you say, you know, I'm a laborer for Christ. You know, I get wore out doing God's work. Can you say that? When's the last time you've been wore out because you've done the Lord's work? Are you admonishing brother and sister Christ with gentleness and respect? Are you teaching with gentleness and respect? Are you proclaiming Him? Students, are you proclaiming Him? You go to school, you're around lost people all day. Your students, your, your classmates, your teachers, are you proclaiming Him? Some of you work. You work with tens of hundreds of people. You're around them all the time. Are you proclaiming Him? If you're a believer, if you're brother and sister Christ, you ought to be laboring, proclaiming Him. Being wore out because you're doing God's work. Because you're praying, because you're looking for opportunities, because you're working at it, loving people, working at sharing truth, working at it. That should be our we have a labor. We don't be wore out. And and for some of us, maybe we're not believers. Maybe I'm I'm, I'm saying all these things, and none of this rings a bell. None of this, you, you can't identify with any of this because you've yet to repent and trust Jesus. You've, read, you've yet to turn from living your own life and doing what you want to do and being Lord of your own life. You've yet to turn to Christ and trust that, yes, Jesus, you died for my sins. You paid the price for me. And on the third day, you rose from the dead to conquer sin and death for me. Some of you, you haven't you've yet to do that. Why don't you do that today? What's keeping you from turning your life over to Jesus? Now, we'll say if, you, if you're not a believer and you want to repent trust Jesus today, I, I just talked about a servant of God suffers. They labor. They get wore out. Yet, becoming a believer is, is not an easy thing. In fact, being a believer in many respects is harder than being lost. Because as a non-believer, you just do whatever you want to do. It's easy to just do what you want to do, right? You don't have to fight sin, fight the flesh. You just live your life for you. You're your own God, right? But as a believer, it is difficult. It's difficult for me. Is there joy in it? There's so much joy in it. I wouldn't trade, I wouldn't trade places with you for anything in the world. I bet my life on Jesus. I want to follow Him. I want to serve Him. I want to grow and be mature in Him. But it's difficult. Because if we're faithful, we suffer. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.